Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, vitreoretinal surgeon Dr. Matt Starr will be talking with us about opioids and ophthalmology, managing postoperative pain. These are huge topics for ophthalmologists to be aware of as we address the opioid epidemic. Dr. Matt Starr is a vitreoretinal surgeon with us here at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Starr completed his residency at the Mayo Clinic and vitreoretinal surgery fellowship at the Wills Eye Hospital. During his fellowship, Dr. Starr was awarded the Ronald G. Michaels Fellowship Foundation Award. In 2021, Dr. Starr was the Macular Society Evangelos Esgurguras Ward and Lecture winner. His clinical interests include the clinical management of vitreoretinal diseases, such as diabetic retinopathy, retinal vascular disease, and age-related macular degeneration, and the surgical management of complex vitreoretinal disorders. Welcome, Dr. Starr. Thank you. It's really an honor to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about opioids, something else I'm also very interested in, uh, you know, patient safety, quality improvement kind of projects like that. We're so happy to have you here, and I think this is a great mixture with you and Eric because the two of you wrote this paper in ophthalmology looking at the impact of standardized prescribing guidelines on opioid use after ophthalmic surgery. This is huge. It's a great topic. And then you've also written a couple other reviews about opioid use in ophthalmology. And it's not something we talk about that often. It's not something we think about because we don't prescribe opioids that much as ophthalmologists, but it's still a huge responsibility for us. Dr. Bothan, you were on that paper too. You're the senior author. You're the first author, Dr. Starr. So why don't you start, kick us off. You're coming from a quality background anyway. What was the inception for this project? And then um, Matt kind of take us into what all went into collecting the data and coming up with the prescribing guidelines that you did. Yeah, I think the House of Medicine as a whole has come to recognize what a challenging landscape this is in properly managing pain and yet addressing the abuse issues and the, the, just the, the looseness of how these are prescribed for various conditions. In ophthalmology, I think we are, I would say, maybe prone to having our own looseness because none of us prescribe them that often. You, as an oculoplastic surgeon, I think probably do it more than, say, Dr. Starr and I, for me and adult strabismus and Dr. Starr and vitreoretinal. So within our department, we recognized that landscape as needing light shined on it and guidelines potentially as a way of enhancing what we do some sort of frame of reference so every time you have a patient saying this really hurts we can turn to some reference some guide that would allow us to make a decision that hopefully would reduce risks and help the patient but also not fall into the pattern of patients that want more they're hurting more so you tend to prescribe a little bit more just to keep the conversation positive with them. So certainly quality projects are something that everybody aspires to do things in a way that helps in an aimed, guided way of what the goal is and doesn't cause other problems along the way. Quality projects are things here that we embrace and as a team and get stakeholder involvement and then learn through the process and trying different interventions. And it's a work in progress. I've celebrated Matt's expertise and forte and energy behind uh, multiple quality efforts that we've done in our department. And so this one was stepping into that area of opioids to, to guide, to first of all, learn from what we're doing. 
and then see if collectively, as we apply some guidelines, if it makes a difference in our practice and for our patients. And Matt certainly helped to lead those efforts, and, and I think we both appreciated not just the impact for our individual practices and our department, but also how hungry the specialty of ophthalmology has been uh, for such results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Matt, what was it like breaking into this project? How did you even approach this topic? It's a huge topic. And talk about also what existed before this project. What are the standard guidelines, and how, how did you approach all of it? Yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate to be here at Mayo. You know, in the House of Surgery, um, there's already been a lot of work that's been done, and ophthalmology just wasn't really there yet. Um, Liz Haberman is a PhD doc here, and so she's done an incredible amount of work with other specialties and was a really great resource for us to use in this project. You know, previously, there really wasn't a lot of work done really at all. Uh, Maria Woodward of Michigan is probably was, you know, and still is like the forefront, you know, leader in opioids and ophthalmology. She's published, I think, the most work in this kind of department, but still there really wasn't any data on like how to prescribe. Right. You know, I come from a very, you know, quality, you know, regimented kind of quality improvement background. I was taught as a medical student, like the Toyota way, lean thinking, Six Sigma. And in wait, from- wait, what, what, is, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> I have to know. Oh man. So gosh, this is a really, I, I spent an entire summer reading like quality improvement project books as like a medical student. And this was like my mentor at WashU in the radiology department. He's like, you just, your, your job this summer is going to read these books. And I had no idea. The, the Toyota book is really interesting. It's just, it's an entire book about how to make a car and how, why their cars are so reliable. Oh, <laughs> and cool. they have a very like regimented um, process on how to do it. And they call it the Toyota way. And it, it it carries over to healthcare, things like that. And mm. yeah, there's a lot of it goes into it. The Swiss cheese model. If you can miss, you know, things like that, and if you do it in a regimented fashion every time, you can minimize mistakes. You minimize process errors. And then, therefore, you can then focus more on, you know, human errors. There's different kinds of errors you can make. And mm-hmm. so for eliminating any process error using this kind of regimented lean thinking, I think you can really impact patients and improve, you know, obviously the quality of care you're giving easy for me is okay let's just let's just make this regimented let's make this a, a guideline a process mm-hmm. and you know kind of copycat or you know tag on to what the house of general surgery was already doing and you know like i said dr hoberman was a great resource for us to kind of you know do that and kind of get things going it was striking how different projects in other locations within mayo had already started this work as has been implied in giving physicians some sort of framework of thinking Mm -hmm. ended up really aligning practices and there's definite backgrounds over uh, one of the things in quality is you don't want to help one aspect of care and hurt others and that's and so with that the the patient satisfaction piece is huge is you try to control medication overuse trying to make sure you still address the patient needs and that work has continued to be part of the mayo fabric Mm -hmm and built into epic in ways to help physicians. So I, I agree with Matt, there was, a, there was a momentum here that we were able to tap into to help our practice in our department. Okay. Yeah, and definitely with the help of you know the other co-authors, Dr. Sanjay Patel and, and George Bartley, like yeah, they were huge resources for me as a resident as well as Dr. Bothin and kind of you know, finding the right people here at Mayo to kind of get this thing you know, off the ground and actually you know, published. Yeah, so talk to me about looking at these opioid studies, even outside of ophthalmology. It seems like the first step is to kind of evaluate what we're doing, what we're prescribing, and then everything goes into these morphine equivalents, these OPMs. And then from that, it's a way to kind of standardize how much opioid are we prescribing. And what did you find in ophthalmology? 
Yeah. So, you know, for me, I, there's a lot of different opi- opioids out there. And right. so that was something that I had, you know, didn't really know a lot about as an ophthalmologist, you know, the, you know, internist, surgeon, you know, general surgeons are doing a lot more of, you know, this prescription. And so for me to understand some of the language was really important, essentially that, you know, different, all different medications have a different kind of equivalent power. And so you have to kind, you know, find the unit. And that for us was oral morphine equivalents or OMEs. You know, that was a lot of help from the team here at Mayo in identifying that. But we wanted just to find out first is like, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. You know? And so you know, when they told us there's a wide range of, you know, prescription patterns, like some patients are getting cataract surgery and getting opioids is just like, why? And so a lot of different kind of questions were then raised after the initial, just like, just kind of essentially query of the, of the data that we had here. So you not only looked at what we're currently prescribing, but then did you also survey faculty to ask what types of procedures they thought would require opioids because I found that very interesting. Yeah, so essentially we want to know why and then that was part of the kind of defining the problem that we had and then as firms of like coming up with a solution, we wanted to be, you know, really equitable and get everyone involved and we had the entire department help us out and they we asked all of them individually, like, what would you do for, you know, this procedure in the setting of knowing that we would really like to limit it at we call it 80 OME, which is essentially like, I think it's a Minnesota state kind of cutoff for, I guess they're within like the post-operative yeah. pain yeah, I guess control. It, and they, so that was kind of our, our upper limit, essentially, if you will. And we said, ideally, though, we'd, we'd like you to prescribe none. Right. Um, yeah. But if you had to, this is, you know, kind of name a procedure. Then we kind of went back and forth with each, you know, cornea, plastics, you know, neuro-op, you know, the cataract surgeons, retina mm-hmm. surgeons in glaucoma and kind of all kind of came together and made that as you can see here this table and it's really interesting when you look at this is we really recommend no opioids if possible you know for the majority of procedures and then you're not even and going a step further rather than giving an 80 ome equivalent level um you know 40 half of that which is not a lot it's essentially five milligrams of oxycodone and that's really all patients need and when you look at the data we didn't have any difference in refill rates. Patients weren't clamoring for more of these medications, like we didn't give them enough. Um, it, it was really enough for most patients when they even needed it. And we go on to say there's a lot of different other options for pain control, you know, talking with their internists, you know, starting with, you know, other conservative therapies, Tylenol, patching, things like that. And we, but we do understand that some patients will need it. And this is not, you know, you have to do this. You all, no patient needs an opioid, but just kind of put in give you an, uh, kind of framework with which to make an educated decision when having to prescribe an opioid uh, after ophthalmic surgery. For me, it helped to frame the range mm-hmm. because we realized there was a wide range of prescribing patterns. And most people per- was were interested in prescribing the smallest amount that was needed. But what was needed was certainly a vague concept, subspecialty to subspecialty. It was striking when we looked at the broader literature on opioid use outside of ophthalmology. And as Matt's saying, within the state of Minnesota now, there's guidelines that say patients for an acute event, such as a surgical event, it is would be inappropriate to prescribe 100 or more OME. And whatever medication a person wants to use, you can quickly on your phone figure out, or there's mm-hmm. tables like in, this, in our publication, what level that would be. Once you understand that someone having a knee surgery, hip surgery, dental procedure, that these guidelines are not recommended above a certain amount, Mm -hmm. why would we be prescribing those in ophthalmology? And so that's where our ceiling sort of became this 80. And then underneath that, we we targeted a 40 for sort of mid-level procedures that were thought to be um, more moderate in pain level. 
So we came up with a zero, which means as a rule of thumb, we don't give opioids for these, or 40, which would be if you're gonna give them, try to keep it 40 or less, or 80, which is a one-time thing. You can always give refills, as Matt's saying, you can do more in any given patient, but use these as a benchmark to try to stick to them. Mm -hmm. It was really nice to have this tiered flexibility Everyone respecting that more than 80 really should raise an eyebrow. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest eye opener was reading like the orthopedic literature on this. And when they recommended like a, a knee replacement or a hip replacement, get 100 OME. And I was like, well, then why would we ever get, need to give more than that? That sounds like, like, gosh, that seems like so painful. But right. like, we're going to give a cataract patient like the same amount. Like that doesn't seem right. right. That, that was the biggest one for me is like actually reading some of the other literature on this, this topic. One of the other baseline awarenesses we had as we queried our department and look back at our statistics or our use patterns is how varied individual practices were. I think academic institutions are particularly at risk of having various patterns because fellowships and residency programs bring in different individuals mm -hmm. yep. and they go service to service or institution to institution and the practices vary. And so if you don't talk about it in, at two in the morning when a resident's getting a call, they make a decision or a staff on call makes a decision. And it, if there's no guidelines for your department, it leaves variation. So we had sometimes the same surgeon and the same surgical procedure over a year period prescribing a wide range of uses, mainly because there wasn't some sort of guide. And the trainees came on and off the services and maybe came from oculoplastics, mm -hmm. and they're used to giving more, and now they're on ANSEG and they just continued that same practice. It was quite enlightening, and, and yet having these guidelines framed in the house of surgery broadly, applied to ophthalmology with a tiered system, became our improved phase after we defined the problem and looked at the metrics behind it and then assessed how, what we could do applying this in the across the ophthalmology. These guidelines are what we'd like to keep you using and let's see if it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the results speak for themselves because you went down about 50% in terms of the amount of opioids that were prescribed before and after the intervention. But then I think the key here is the refill rates were the same, right? So it's not like, we're well, we're prescribing less at the beginning, but then they're calling in for refills or they're needing more. So that's huge. That really kind of shows that the intervention worked. Mm -hmm. I wanna go back to that chart that just shows what procedures were using higher OMEs. And I think it's so interesting that it was a consensus from multiple providers across multiple training, across all kinds of geography um, kind of coming together and deciding these are the procedures that, that may require higher. And just for people who aren't, aren't seeing, for listeners, some of the, basically the vast majority of things in level zero were, I mean, most of what we're doing in ophthalmology is level zero. And the level ones, let's see, what did we have? Keratorefractive surgery, so laser surgery, TRABs. Yeah, TRABs are level zero. It was more glaucoma drainage devices, cyclophotocoagulation, brachytherapy, and then adult strabismus or trauma. Yeah. Up, those were the ones that we said up to 40 is reasonable. Yep. Um, no, you can do a cataract, and if it's, if it's a huge corneal abrasion or something else happens, you can prescribe, but let's try to keep it within even th those cases, the exception yeah. cases, mm -hmm. keep it less than 40. Yeah. And then 80 for the listeners then too, if you're the highest amounts in our department, we decided was the brachytherapy, actually sclerobuckle was a two, but the brachytherapy, I think it, what else it was? Plaques, or orbitotomies, orbitotomies, and, and nucleations. And nukes, yeah. Yeah. Generally it was, you know, the bigger, you know, 
plant, oculoplastic procedures and nuclear evisceration, things like that. I think the biggest take home is convincing the coordinator department on the PRK yeah. uh, practice. I've never had it. I, I know it's probably awful and very painful, but they kind of bought it and said, okay, we can just do a smaller dose and a very you know, regimented kind of approach. We, you know, we gave them a table, the other table that we don't, we're not showing, but like this is what this kind of means. Like this is how many tablets that is. And that's something that, you know, Maria Woodward, I kind of alluded to earlier, that's, she's a cornea specialist. And so she's done a lot of work in terms of how can they minimize like post-refractive kind of pain. Yeah. Another thing too, an awareness over the guidelines, it's not just the table, but I think the guidelines and it's in the, man, the manuscript for people, it's meant to also help frame your thinking on prescribing. So mm-hmm. don't just prescribe four days and uh, and give them a certain dose. It, it brings in the idea of talk to them about a taper, mm-hmm. talk to them about alternative means, when to engage a pain consult. So patients that present to you on opioids, those are ones that we all feel uncomfortable with and a pain consult should be obtained or working with the primary physician or whoever's managing those opioids. And then the other piece too is being very reluctant uh, in any acute event, and this is modeled after the house of surgery, to prescribe medications after the first week. Mm-hmm. If you've completed a week post-op, and they're still asking for opioids, that patient should be re-examined or, an, or another thought process. So we're talking acute pain is defined as less than a week. Yeah, that's huge, that's so important. And what kind of other interventions are you guys now incorporating into your practice or, or recommending that other people do just to avoid prescribing opioids in general? Are there, what other things can we be doing? For most of my patients, I tell them from a retina standpoint, you're gonna need Tylenol every four to six hours for the first mm-hmm. few days. I really admit that a lot of them will say, well, not anything else. It's like, no, actually you don't. And I just like tell, telling them up front, you, you really don't, a, it goes a really long way. They expect like, oh, I'm having surgery. I need, you know, my opioid. And I'm like, it's just kind of letting me know, I actually don't do it for really like 99.9% of my patients. Mm-hmm. Patients like, you know, Eric said, if they come to me already on an opioid, I, I really almost kind of like just, you know, you're going to get a pain consult. One, they, their surgery I've always noticed is going, it goes a little bit different for them sometimes in terms mm-hmm. of how I block or, you know, like an anesthesia I have to choose. But then postoperatively, I really like the help from the pain doctor to, and, and, and how they manage the postoperative uh, opioids. That's a really yeah, good our point. Our colleague Tim Olson has done some work research regarding the use of variations in local treatments. Yeah. Talk to us from a retina perspective. I think it's applicable whether in strabismus or a lot of other areas, the use of local and how often you use that as an adjunct to um, other pain management treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think every patient in retina is gonna get blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do mine actually different. I do a subtenon's cut down block because I feel like it's safer than a retrobulbar, but that's another <laughs> topic for another and, day. And longer acting, have you switched to longer acting meds? So or? what I, I do, the we call it the TO block for Tim Olson. And so he adds a steroid <laughs> into his, and I do it at the end of all my cases. The data speaks for itself. And the senior author is another retina surgeon I actually trained with, Sony Meta, And they found that the rate of opioids after their when they compared no versus including steroids in the block at the end, they found the number of opioids was actually significantly lower. And so that, to me, you know, it, it spoke for itself. And so I, I've incorporated that in my practice as well. That's terrific. I do a, a long-acting block at the end of all my enucleations or eviscerations. So I just give them just subconj at the beginning because usually they're under general anesthesia. But then at the end of the case, I do a more of a long-acting block. And I don't have to use opioids at all for those nice. cases. I mean, you have a select few patients that are more kind of sensitive to pain or, or hypersensitized or whatever. And your idea of a pain consult is huge. That's something I don't incorporate in my practice, but maybe I will for those patients. You already know ahead of time are going to have a hard time. Yeah. That seems like a really good idea. Yeah, I think I've learned the hard way sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> and especially from a few encounters in fellowship. But no, it, it really does go a long way. 
you know, there, our connectivity here at Mayo is rich in, in providing levels of care that potentially are hard in private practices and surgery centers sure. out in wherever they, a person might be practicing and listening to this. I think the biggest thing is engaging the primary care or the prescriber of the opioids in the history. State societies and state medical boards have growingly more uh, stronger opioid management programs and prescribing mm-hmm. programs so you can more easily see the history uh, for certain patients. It takes time but the effort in advance is going to save you a lot more headache afterwards and help to con- control this problem by addressing the patient needs but doing it in a teamwork way. Yeah. How Can I ask you guys, because you're coming from Retina, Dr. Starr, and pediatrics and adults for business, so we've got a wide range here. How do you all feel about NSAIDs, specifically IV Tordal, because that's been a big topic in oculoplastics, and I'm still hesitant to do it for a lot of my cases, even though there's good data within oculoplastic literature that shows that it doesn't increase the risk of post-op hemorrhage. Still makes me nervous, but I'm thinking more about incorporating it. Yeah, in the review article that I, we've we've put together, we, we cite the literature on inoculoplastics that there's no difference in post-operative hemorrhages right. with use of IV tortal. And so I, I most of the CRNAs or anesthesiologists will ask me. They I, all I, ask me. Yeah, and I, I say whatever you feel is, is necessary. From a retina standpoint, you know, post-operatively, I'm not too concerned with, with that. The biggest thing you know I'm concerned about is if you know some sort of valsalva or you know change in intraocular pressure with a. I've had a couple of patients cough and, and cause cortical hemorrhages postoperatively, but they, they weren't even on anticoagulant mm. or anything like that. I'll say that I've, for years, <laughs> request on every case toward all provided it's not less than age two. Some anesthesiologists get a little hesitant when strabismus repair, okay. and a lot of times the youngest kids in strabismus don't need that much help, but and a certain level on elderly that they get a what more cautious from a renal standpoint mm-hmm. but you talk about the renal status and make sure that's okay with anesthesia and in my cases every strabismus case gets toward all at the end of the case okay that's very reassuring to know yeah. i think it's a great adjunct it makes me nervous especially in orbit cases yeah, I think we don't have it in this paper, but in the review article we talked about, there's a lot of different kind of adjunctive therapies, mm-hmm. toradol, the type of block. With cataracts, there's other different kind of things. There's other topical drops you can use that are perhaps longer acting. And there's a lot of different strategies you can maybe account for in the perioperative period, not necessarily in the week afterwards. Okay. And I, sometimes surgery is a little bit like a sunburn where right away it's so bad and then it's getting better quickly. And so even though there's this, you know, opioid guidelines that as physicians we might choose to avoid as our baseline. And not uncommonly in the post-op period, I'll have the an opioid as an option that they'll give them one, mm-hmm. just to help them through those first hours and knowing that six hours later, the sutures are already getting less scratchy and there's just less inflammation from their anesthesia overlay of whatever they've been given. It just seems easier. Mm-hmm. So you can you can choose to use the less than 40 or in, including can just be one post-op and out the door using other regimens. I find, and I just like to get your thoughts on this, you talked about telling patients that you really shouldn't need it and you'll be okay. And there's some hand-holding and journey there, especially when they wake up in more pain. What's been your sense, Matt, over having these guidelines as a resource and how you talk to patients? Yeah, I mean, so I, I mean, I, we one have the data now to kind of back up some of these claims. Since I've been back, I haven't prescribed a single opioid in fellowship. I, I really was the one who didn't do a lot of it, and so I, you know, I, I kind of talk to the patients about it. I say, you know, most of them don't. I show them if they if they really are interested, I can show them some of the data. I had one patient I remember who like called me that night, and I still said, "You're going to be okay. Take some Tylenol." And they talked to me the next morning, and they're like, "Yeah, I, I really am fine now." 
It was just like a Tylenol really helped and I didn't need anything. And, and, and so from my experiences, most of them are really skeptical, mm-hmm. but then they kind of buy in, you know, definitely buy the post-op day one uh, appointment. For me, the reason I asked too is I, it's sometimes hard when you're sitting there with a patient who knows full well that you could prescribe something for them mm-hmm. and you're telling them you're they're okay and they're looking at you going, I'm not okay. For me, it's been a helpful piece. Even if I am going to prescribe, I can turn to a department guideline. So if a, a private practice or a group practice or an academic institution doesn't have a guideline, I'd encourage them to to use this or as a resource to develop their own, mm-hmm. whether they adopt it in block or they may change it in some way. And with that, it allows a physician to say, our department has reviewed our practices and this is what is recommended. These are our guidelines in prescribing them. It, it takes a little bit of the burden off you as a physician when you can fall back on a careful management choice that the department's made. And when you prescribe them, choosing you're only giving me four is because of these guidelines that I am, that's our practice. And I think part of it speaks to my practice pattern as a retinal surgeon when I scare patients into the risk of retinal detachment <laughs> surgery. And I think all of them think they're going to detach after the retinal detachment surgery because I scare them so much about the risk of that. I tell them the risk of opioid use. I think it's really not hard for them to buy in now with the opioid epidemic and they all know and they've all heard of it. It's all on it's all on the news channels and, and they know that. But then there's even more literature that just came out from another one of my mentors in, uh, at Wills, Yoshi Yonakawa, and Maria Woodward, I think, was a senior author on that one too. They you know, found an increased risk of opioid dependence following ophthalmic surgery in those patients who are given an opioid prescription. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of their like socioeconomic background, you know, if you got an opioid prescription, you're more likely to become opioid dependent than if you did not receive it. And like mm-hmm. that speaks volumes. Like mm-hmm. if you tell them you have a slightly higher risk, like that of becoming dependent on an opioid from an eye surgery, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a huge deal. There's so much impact on this from a provider standpoint and a patient standpoint. For the listeners, we'll link both this ophthalmology article from Dr. Starr and Dr. Bothin in the show notes, as well as your big review on opioids and ophthalmology. That was in AJO, I think. Current opinions. Current opinions. We'll link both of those in the show notes so that you can access those. And uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. I really appreciate you both kind of contributing to this. I think it's very, very helpful and I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you again for having me. It was awesome. It's been a delight. Thanks again. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening and we definitely look forward to sharing more next week.